0: Hello and welcome to our Bodies, Our Voices podcast. We're your hosts, Becca and Joanna. We are two women in our thirties and we interview individuals and experts on topics related to fertility, family building, career, exercising our voices and more. Our guest today is Dr. Chitra Akiliswaran. Chitra is a board certified obstetrician gynecologist and attending physician at Alameda Health System. She's also the co-founder and chief clinical officer at Clio, a company that supports working parents, through their family planning and parenting journeys. We chat with Chitra about how COVID-19 is impacting family planning, considerations for those who are looking to become pregnant, who are pregnant, or those who are planning a birth in the midst of COVID-19. Chitra also shares her personal journey towards becoming a mother and speaks about some of the misconceptions people have as they think about starting a family.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be able to be on this podcast with you both today. I am Dr. Chitra Kiliswaran. I am a board-certified obstetrician gynecologist, and I practice in Oakland, California, and I'm the vice chair of OBGYN at Alameda Health System. On the side, about four years ago, had the fortune to start a company called Clio, which is a support system for parents through the entirety of the parenting journey that relies on a digital interface as well as a virtual care model that connects parents from the point where they're thinking about starting a family through the point where they have young children with support and services that they often can't get through the healthcare system or through their communities to be able to be the successful working parents that they want to be. It's such a difficult time for so many reasons. And I think those families that are hoping to grow during this time have some of the most challenging questions around what does the future look like? And what can I do today to kind of feel like I have a little bit more control over that future? And of course, none of us have really any control at this point. And I think a lot of us are sort of exercising our ability to stay present and zen during this time. But I think those of us who are trying to conceive or have hopes of starting a family right now are particularly challenged. Um, The professional societies in fertility and reproductive medicine, when the pandemic first really hit in the United States, States especially, put a suspension of all the fertility-related procedures and care and treatments that were available at the time, deeming them not essential enough to uh, be worthy of the potential risks of continuing to have patients come into clinical settings and receive care. And that has since changed. We're starting to see things open back up a bit, but it's still left a big, big portion of patients that I see in a panic around what am I supposed to expect at this point? You know, I was in the middle of kind of planning this next step in my family growing process or I was really hoping to start IVF this summer or I am just being diagnosed with infertility or I'm actually just trying to conceive on my own and I don't know whether I should continue to do that. And as far as what Clio is doing, you know, what we have is a care model that basically pairs families with what we call Clio guides, who are typically experts in an area, but are not um, necessarily physicians or nurses, they often provide the sort of emotional support and knowledge-related support that is required um, to feel like you have a partner in the process that you're going through. In the considering product that we have, which is anything before you actually get pregnant, what we've seen is, you know, information is everything, really empowering people with information to be able to say, this is the choice that's right for me. And even if I delay this by three months or six months, it's not going to be the end of the world versus that's actually going to make all the difference for me and I need to try to find a way to not only hang on in the time being, but also know what my strategy is going to be when things start to open up again can really help people feel more secure about their plans. When it comes to people that are trying to spontaneously conceive, meaning they're just trying to conceive on their own without any assistance, the guidelines actually suggest that there's nothing to stop that process from happening. It's really around your particular risk tolerance and how concerned would you feel if you did get pregnant at this time when prenatal care has changed, when we don't actually know what this virus does in terms of pregnancy outcomes? We have some early data that suggests that it's safe, but there's not enough to say yes or no. And therefore, it's sort of up to you to decide what's right for you. When it comes to people that require assistance, I think there are folks that really have time sensitivity. Either they are going through early menopause or are facing illness that is going to take their fertility away. And those people actually can continue to receive treatment. And we actually have places that we could refer them centers of excellence to be able to do that. And then there are those who are sort of facing the tincture of time of like, I've tried to conceive. It's not working on on its own. I need assistance and help. And those are the folks that have been put on hold where again, a three month or six months delay may not make a difference, but it feels like the world is sort of caving in. And that's where the emotional support and guidance comes in. So I can't say that we're fixing the problem for people, but I think we're providing them with outlets and plans and reassurance and factual guidance that is helping them make better choices in this very uncertain
2: time. Thank you so much for that. Speaking of the people that you have been seeing, how is COVID-19 changing the way that you interact with patients and maybe even some of the, the way the staff at Clio are interacting with patients or families?
1: It's a great question. I think all of us sort of face the both personal consequences of this as well as the professional ones. We're all going through this together in a way, but also feel very isolated in what we're going through. At the end of the day, you know, whether you're a frontline healthcare worker or whether you work at a tech company and providing virtual care to people or you're working from home or unfortunately laid off or furloughed, it can be very isolating. You're trying to deal with the dynamics of your own family. You're trying to figure out how to keep your loved ones safe. You're trying to figure out how to get groceries and regular old stuff for your home. And so I think in some ways, those of us who have continued to have work to do together in a community setting, in some ways are lucky. Team Clio has almost sort of an increased burden of responsibility during this time because families are sort of asking for more support, more guidance, more facts. I'm pregnant now. What can I expect? I'm in my third trimester. What can I expect from labor and birth? I'm about to enter the postpartum stage. I don't know what that's going to look like. I can't have my parents come and see me anymore. I'm trying to return to work. And I don't know what returning to work even means because I'm going to be working next to my infant. These are sort of all the uncertainties that Team Clio is dealing with. And fortunately, because there's so much activity, it it does feel like we're together in a way. There's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of collaboration. And similarly with my staff on my hospital setting, there's something actually relieving about walking into work and seeing everybody there and seeing we're a team, we're together, that's sort of one side of it is sort of that isolation piece actually is easier in some ways to handle. The other side, of of course, is the risk and the safety, the lack thereof. What's been really challenging, at least in the hospital setting, is what we understand about this disease has changed so much week to week. So we're doing the best we can and providing guidance. It hasn't always been right. And I'll just say that outright, and I tell patients this all the time, that next week we may decide that wearing masks for everyone is the right thing. And people were asking that for weeks before we actually implemented universal masking. We're acting on what we know today, but this could change tomorrow.
2: And in that vein, even just reading the news and experiencing that ourselves, it is really remarkable how things have changed pretty rapidly week to week. I'm wondering if there's any decision-making frameworks or filters that you advise patients to have in mind when trying to filter through so many different variables and choices.
1: There's almost too much information. We've always sort of suffered from this in the last several years where social media has been a primary format of accessing information. In some ways, I feel like it's better to stick with one or two sources and just trust those. I, I, I think you could tr- probably spend 24 hours a day consuming information on this pandemic. Um, and that's not helpful. Because you're really not going to learn that much that's new, that's actionable. Whereas from one day to the next day, or really one week from the, to the next week, that's sort of when the changes are happening that impact your behaviors and impact the way you live the things that we're learning, whether the droplets of a cough travel six feet versus nine feet versus twenty-seven feet, that's really not gonna change the way you you live in the world versus wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, like that is gonna change the way you live in the world. So I would say pay attention to the the bigger shifts that are happening week to week as opposed to day to day or minute to minute. And try to focus on a couple of sources that you trust because it's otherwise it's just you know the signal to noise ratio is just way too low and it's really overwhelming and honestly toxic for our well-being, our emotional well-being and to sort of feel safe.
0: I wanted to go back to where you were talking about for individuals who might now get pregnant and thinking about what prenatal care would look like also just the decision to get pregnant and understanding each person has a different risk tolerance. I I know a lot of my friends who have not had children Are also just in this state where they have no idea what they would be facing anyways, and their anxiety is heightened knowing that because of COVID, there will be more uncertainty. Can you walk through for your prenatal patients right now, or someone who is planning to get pregnant during this uncertain time, what can they expect for what prenatal care looks like, what might be different, or just what that experience and extra safety precautions that they should take just in their lifestyle or in their life?
1: Prenatal care is fundamentally different than it ever has been before, and it will probably continue to stay that way. And the reason I say that is because we have been overdue to update and modernize prenatal care for a long time. And this pandemic, in some ways, has sort of pushed us to do that. In ways that is more patient-centric and more trusting of our patients, the fact that you can't access care as often and that you're accessing care in a way that's more virtual and more through telehealth platforms as opposed to in-person actually puts more um, of a partnership with your patient where your patient is more in control, where they have more of a say and they're leaning more on their intuition and their understanding of their body to actually be a participant in that care. And I think that's a good thing. It's scary to some people. It's scary to go into a system where it's like all of a sudden you're not seeing your doctor for two months and you're pregnant and you may have a phone call in between and the doctor's like, just call us if you need anything. That can feel really scary. It can feel abandoning in a way. I think the most valuable part of prenatal care is building that trusted relationship with your provider, knowing that you have actually have most of the answers and preparing for birth. And preparing for that parenting journey. The way that prenatal care has changed is that first of all, the first visit happens a lot later than it used to. And so if you're trying to conceive and you've got a history of miscarriage, early loss, ectopic pregnancy, and you are counting on seeing your provider on the early end of things, like as soon as you get that pregnancy test, or as soon as you start to feel the symptoms of being pregnant, That is something that has almost universally gone away, I think, in special circumstances. And or if you are like, I insist that this is something I need, your doctor or your midwife would honor that. But for the most part, it's not being standardly done. So you may not see your doctor or midwife until well into your first trimester, almost your second trimester. You may start with a phone call at six to eight weeks with a nurse, someone to sort of do that history and intake. And you may not have your first ultrasound until you're ten to thirteen weeks pregnant, which can feel really scary to someone.
0: I'm curious: have you seen an impact in how people are thinking then about prenatal genetic testing, given that that often can happen as early as twelve weeks? How is that being impacted by this change in schedule?
1: I personally would have been scared myself as a mother if I hadn't had the chance to verify sort of the 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 health of my pregnancy earlier than ten to thirteen weeks. I mean, I think. That is something that we we very much rely on in our society is just an early ultrasound to kind of check and make sure everything's okay. And what we're doing is basically saying, look, there's going to be some that we miss in that early period, but the risks of um, having so many patients come through the door and potentially expose the workforce and expose each other is not worth it. And there, and for the most part, everything is going to be fine. So. For some people, that could feel very, very lonely, isolating, scary, and something that they can't really subscribe to. And in that case, like I said, it's very reasonable to ask for what you need. Your doctor, your midwife should always be able to see you. I think for prenatal genetic testing, what we're seeing is really a move towards non-invasive prenatal testing, as opposed to the nuchal translucency ultrasound, which happened in person, obviously, and the combination of blood tests. We're really seeing that move to, let's just get a blood test early on, you drop into the lab, you get that blood test, and that sort of guides a lot of the conversation that's happening. And what's interesting about that is that that non-invasive prenatal test, the NIPT test, um, doesn't test for everything, right? It doesn't test for as comprehensive of the issues that the nuchal translucency and the other version of genetic screening does. So in some ways, you may not be screening for as much, but again, we're sort of weighing what are, we, what are the most concerning things we're looking for? We're looking for those chromosomal abnormalities that would result in an unfortunate outcome or reasons why you may want to end the pregnancy because of those unfortunate outcomes. So, you know, there's sort of like a risk benefit that's happening, but it's very interesting that it's sort of forcing a decision around the type of testing that is available to people.
2: You said at the beginning that there is this sense maybe of loss or abandonment or just feeling like a little uncertain if you're not going to have your first real appointment until late first or second trimester. I'm curious if you could articulate what's actually happening in that relationship between the provider and the patient at that stage during the early first trimester. And if you see any opportunities for other maybe less healthcare-centered mediums to fill that gap of understanding or comfort especially during this time?
1: Pregnancy is not a disease state. It is a state of health and normalcy for most people. Obviously, for some, there are sort of additional conditions that come along with it that do represent illness. But it's really around sort of guiding you know, birth parents through this journey that is physiologic, that is innate to your system. And therefore, the relationship building that happens is really around anticipatory guidance. How can I help you see around the corners that are coming ahead and help you understand why these changes are happening? And what are the next things you should be preparing for? What are the risks that come along with each of these phases that you're going to be going through? What are the decisions that you need to make that I can help support you through? It's not about diagnosing and treating. It's about evaluating, risk stratifying, supporting, guiding the psychological, emotional, and physical journeys that you're about to go on. And with that said, does it have to be a doctor at the helm? I mean, in most other countries, doctors aren't the ones that are taking care of the majority of pregnant women. We know that in this country, obstetricians are the sort of primary workforce for this population. And therefore, I think there can be a lot of other support that fills that gap. In fact, one of the models of prenatal care that is the most successful that actually adds a lot of value and has been proven to have excellent outcomes from a clinical perspective is called centering pregnancy. And the idea behind centering is that it's a group model of care where you have a facilitator who is a clinical expert, but they also facilitate alongside someone who is more of a peer counselor. And it's really about having people actually support one another. That's actually the secret sauce of it. It's not about I'm in charge. I'm going to direct the conversation as the clinician. It's like, I'm here to just check in and make sure things are okay. But mostly you all are supporting each other, normalizing what you're going through, helping each other see through to the other side. And particularly in vulnerable populations where there are lots of social determinants and there are lots of complicated sort of, you know, factors such as, you know, racism and classism and bias that they may face in their lives that the fabric of that group actually protects against the negative impacts of those biases because it's really about going through this like really transformative experience together so can you know prenatal care as it stands today be supplanted by a model that's not clinical yeah i think so for sure and I wonder if virtual groups in a way will take off and sort of provide that support modeled after sending pregnancy or other models like it to actually kind of be the glue between your regular prenatal visits.
0: I was curious if you have seen an emergence of digital groups and support groups for women. It sounds like there's a lot of providers who are now able to do Digital connection with patients, but I'm wondering how you get more of that interaction, patient to patient.
1: Yeah, in sort of finishing the thought around prenatal care and how it's changed. Basically, every other visit is a virtual visit these days with your doctor or midwife. You're cutting your visits down by half, at least, if not further. You may actually go into the clinic three times during your pregnancy. On the group front, I do think there's an emergence of sort of digital forums and/or group opportunities to connect, and in part, that's not just because of the void that's left by having such little access to in-person care, but also because classes and opportunities to learn and prepare for the transitions of birth, breastfeeding, parenting, et cetera, have completely gone away. So hospitals have canceled all those classes, which is traditionally sort of the outlets where they were provided. A lot of these other sort of parenting centers have canceled all those classes. And in a way, there had to be something that sort of supported parents, um, expecting parents and, you know, new parents through that journey. And that's sort of come in the form of groups. So, you know, What I will say is that Clio actually does a lot of those groups, and we offer them for free online at this point to the public. And so if you go to our COVID-19 support page, which is available through our main website, www.highclio.com, you can find it. And we actually have recorded groups on a lot of different topics related to birth, pregnancy, parenting, feeding, like working parenthood, et cetera local community resources are actually starting to go online. So for example, there's a community resource in San Francisco called Natural Resources, and they're trying to put a lot of their groups online. So I would start to check websites like that.
0: Great. Thanks for that. Another follow-up I had, you mentioned how important the relationship is between the provider and the patient, and that now is so much is going virtual. Having that connection over time is really important. I know that a lot of my friends, the moment they get pregnant, if they're in San Francisco, for example, get really stressed about what hospital to choose because certain hospitals, for example, never guarantee that you'll see the same provider and that you might end up seeing a different person every time. Now, knowing that there's going to be fewer visits, do you have thoughts or advice for pregnant patients thinking about where do they choose? How do they get started with care? Knowing a lot of it may now be remote. I would say there's two answers to that question, which is that what
1: matters in in terms of selecting a provider around prenatal care, birth-related care, and postpartum care is based on a couple of things. One is ultimately the hospital where you're going to give birth. There are variations in quality, in performance, in the experience of birth at different facilities, even in a place like San Francisco, where most Facilities and most providers are extremely progressive. You will see variation in things like C-section rate, how much time you'll be given, what kinds of policies they have around doulas and supporting doulas. The, the cultures of those facilities are different. And I think that is ultimately a very important factor to consider in selecting a provider is where they're affiliated in terms of your hospital, because it will shape that experience of birth significantly. I think in terms of the provider themselves, I would actually use the opportunity of COVID to really ask hard questions before you get into a relationship with a provider. Because again, not all, just like not all hospitals are created equal, not all practices are created equal. And there were no sort of national guidelines until several weeks into the pandemic around even how to provide care. Everyone was sort of figuring it out for themselves. And we were all trading notes, like over text and email, essentially. And I know this because I was one of the people trading notes. (laughs) So I know that not all practices have the same level of ability to support video visits, for example, and not all practices have the same ability to message with you, provide 24-7 access to someone through an advice line. Not all practices have the ability to make sure that you feel truly cared for even when you're getting your care virtually. If it's a small practice of three providers, maybe there's an opportunity for you to meet all three, and that would make you feel more at ease if one of them is on call when you're giving birth. Versus a practice of 20 providers and maybe that feels good to you because it's like, you know what, it's a great hospital. I'm totally fine with whoever I get. I trust all the people in this practice. And that's fine. But I think I would ask your the providers that you're thinking about, you know, how are you providing care during this time? What's it going to look like in my first trimester, my second trimester, my third trimester? Are there going to be any differences around the birth process? And postpartum process. Are there anything? Is there anything that I wouldn't have access to during this process of pregnancy or birth that I, you know, would have had before? You know, how are you thinking about keeping up with the latest practices around COVID? You know, would you would you have your family member, you know, seek care with you and this hospital? I think there are some providers that are like, we're just not up to date, and our hospital leadership is just not up to date, and that's just the way it is. We don't have the resources. And they'll be honest about that. And others will be like, we are on the cutting edge and we will provide the best possible care to you regardless of what's going on right now. So I would, I would actually just, you know, it's actually an opportunity to ask hard questions. And I would feel free to do that because I think everyone is aware that we're all trying to figure it out and we're not the same.
0: That is really helpful. Cause I know from experience, just jumping in and having no idea what to do. Like if you become pregnant, there's no good checklist. So I was told like, call a hospital, see if you can get an appointment. It's just complete no information. Even just those questions are so helpful for someone who may be entering into this new phase during this crazy
2: time. Yeah. I just want to appreciate you again for listing off all those things. And- I'm sort of at the beginning of my fertility preservation journey and I'm wondering if you have a similar list of questions for someone like myself who might have planned on pursuing egg freezing sometime in 2020, maybe didn't quite get around to it, calling anyone before, you know, COVID hit. What are some questions that a prospective client should be asking clinics?
1: It's again extremely challenging because there's so much variation out there and every fertility practice is again sort of trying to weigh the risks and benefits of opening back up in a way that serves their patient population and their locale and their providers. And so there are going to be differences between practices is what I'll say to start. One of the most important things about the fertility preservation or reproductive assistance journey is finding a place that you not only trust that is producing great outcomes, which you can evaluate because there's data out there that's like public data on the outcomes of different clinics, but also convenience. And that convenience includes things like distance from where you are, you're going to be doing ultrasounds potentially on a daily basis or every other day, and the pricing of what what you're actually paying for, because there is variation in pricing as well. If, if that's, you no know, that important to you, that's fine. But I think given that those constraints might be in place, pick three clinics that are sort of in your vicinity that have outcomes that you're comfortable with. And I would call and ask, first of all, how open are you at this point? Are you accepting patients? What kinds of patients are you accepting at this point? When do you anticipate that you'll be able to take on patients that are interested in fertility preservation in the form of egg freezing? And are there any differences in your practice around egg freezing today than there were pre this pandemic. Are you going to be taking any additional precautions or using protocols that are different? And how will that produce different outcomes for me? And if you have some range on when you can actually start that process, you know, would you advise me to wait until you're able to be more liberal in how you provide care for me? I I think this is really a question of timing. And if you have time to wait, you know, is there gonna be, is it gonna be that much more optimal in two months? or three months, or four months than it is right now when things are just starting to open up again and when there might be some extra cautiousness that either is explicit and it's like we're doing our protocols differently or is implicit and it's like I just don't want to do anything that's going to potentially cause a complication. you know? And I'm not going to tell the patient that, but I just am being super cautious. There's some sort of implicitness to that that providers are feeling as well. I would probably start with those questions and You know, I think there's sort of the usual questions that you would ask for, you know, going on to fertility IQ and sort of seeing what people's experiences are is absolutely worthwhile all around. But I think it's worth sort of again just addressing like what is this like now versus what it was like before? And do you anticipate it's going to be different, you know, in a few months? And therefore, how would you advise me?
0: I can share a few things that happened at the clinic I went at because I was able to sneak in a round of embryo freezing right as shelter in place started in San Francisco. The point about quality and outcomes is still, for me, was the most important. And I think it should be a really important decision point for people in this time. One thing that was really interesting is my clinic and I think a lot of the clinics on the West Coast were closing more because they were worried about undue burden on hospitals and the broader healthcare system more so than really concerned about transmission of patients coming into fertility clinics. But even so, factors I would have people consider is distance from your home. If you don't have a car, for me, I ended up walking to and from all my appointments except the day of the surgery where we got a friend to give us a ride because all of a sudden I had to think that I can't take a Lyft or Uber and just take that for granted. And so was planning hour-long walks to go to every ultrasound. There was also an awkward period before people were wearing masks. I would definitely recommend people wear masks, but... People were still sitting in the chairs and I was the awkward woman in the corner who would stand, not sit down as I went into appointments. They were doing a lot of cleaning and I know they were doing things, but I was just being ultra careful and I kind of gave up. I don't need to look cool right now. And then I know our clinic for a while also wouldn't let partners come in except the day of surgery. And so there were certain procedures and they were doing a lot in terms of like everyone on staff had to, I think, take a shower and change clothes into scrubs as soon as they got into the clinic which they were really open about answering when I asked questions like that, because I was being pretty proactive and and paranoid. I think the distance piece was really important because you go in so frequently.
1: It's true. And if you have a a normal work day that you're planning it around, you're trying to go in first thing in the morning or last thing in, in the evening and trying to plan it around meetings and whatnot in this environment where You may be working from home or you may not be working or whatever your work situation is, it's different. And you may not have access to the same transportation. You may not have access to the same level of convenience of public transportation or getting around that you did before. So that is a huge piece of it.
0: This leads me to another question I had, which we've talked about before. But I think the reason I ultimately decided to try to freeze embryos is because I learned that. I potentially had a threat to my fertility and could have a shorter timeline and couldn't take things for granted and learn that things aren't always quite as efficient as we may have been taught at one point of you decide you want to have a baby, you try to get pregnant, you get pregnant, and you have a baby nine months later. And so I'd love your thoughts because I think for people who are just starting to delve into fertility, thinking about family planning, may not always have the best information around like what is the average time? for conception? How should women think about when fertility may decline? And how do you count backwards to think about, can I achieve my goals of maybe two children, three children, whatever someone's planning for? Because I know personally, the information I received or just the assumptions I had may not have been true.
1: Yeah. And it's hard. It's very deceiving because for the most part, most people around you are also going to have these experiences that maybe confirm misinformation around how easy it is to get pregnant or they may not be revealing the true struggles that they're having, which is also a big thing, right? The stigma around it. The truth of it is that for the average person, the average couple that's trying to conceive spontaneously, each cycle offers about a 20% chance of conceiving. So that's just one in five. That means there's four in five chance of not conceiving during that cycle. That's if you have sex at exactly the right time. You know, there's only a short window in each cycle where you can actually get pregnant. And that window is really around three to five days around ovulation. And so in a six month period, we would expect if you're having unprotected sex, that about 80% of couples will be able to conceive in that time. And in a year long period, 90% of couples will be able to conceive if you're having unprotected sex. The thing that is challenging about this is, what about all those months where you don't conceive? What's happening there? And how does that feel? And I think the feeling around not getting pregnant when you really want to is so difficult to bear. You sort of feel like your body's a failure. You feel like something's not right. And you know, I think for some people, they're like, let's just try and see how it goes. And I have no timeline and I'm totally fine. But I think a lot of us who are in our mid-30s and are like, well probably a good time to start thinking about if I want to start a family, and it doesn't feel so much like I have the next 10 years to have a family, you know. And I think that's where our expectations get a lot more intense and accelerated relative to what's possible from a a nature perspective. There are going to be people who conceive on the first time, and that's great. But Let's also remember that that's conceiving, that's not having a live birth. So then there's the chance of miscarriage. And of course, as age goes up, your chance of miscarriage goes up. And that's not because there's something like inherent to being, you know, 35 or 38 or 40 or 45. It's because, you know, women in particular are born with a finite number of eggs and the quality of those eggs diminishes over time. So the chance of you having a normal egg and normal sperm coming together to produce a genetically viable embryo goes down over time. And when you don't have a genetically viable embryo, there's a very small chance that that embryo can survive and grow into a baby that's not genetically normal. But the bigger chance is that that's an embryo that's not going to be compatible with life and that your body is going to naturally expel it. So that's sort of where miscarriage occurs most often. So, you know, you, you try to conceive, you start that process and you say, okay, I want to have a baby. I'll have a baby in a year from now. If I start now, well, the reality is you start to try. You're three months in, you get pregnant, and maybe you're facing a miscarriage. And that miscarriage process, I mean, you're pregnant for another three months and then you have the miscarriage. That's six months into your journey already. And then you have that miscarriage and then you want to wait a little bit for your body to recover. And then you start the process again of trying to conceive um, and you may be nine months into that journey. And then you're almost at that year mark and there's no baby. And of course, there are people that for whom that entire timeline that they predicted works out. And that's wonderful. But the reality is for most people, it's not going to be what they expected. So deciding to start to try to have a child and then actually achieving that can take two to three years. And I don't want to scare anybody, but that is the reality that I think is the mismatch of expectations between what we think and what what is real. And yeah. that's, I think, what a lot of women face.
0: Absolutely. And I, I'm realizing, I'm like, wow, we've got kind of heavy. And this is tough, but I actually think this was the goal of us starting this podcast is we want to share these types of statistics, give individuals this information, because I know, at least for me, these are all things that as I started thinking about family planning, they're not quite there. And I think your point also around the incorrect bias around us based on what we're seeing with other people is so true. I know a lot of my friends did actually have miscarriages, had challenges with conceiving and never spoke about it. And so I think part of a problem is many of us only hear the success. And so we go in with maybe a false positive thought around what might happen. And when negative happens, there's a risk of feeling totally isolated and alone. And I think also just not having access to the true information or true stories of those around us. So I know Joanna and I, our goal has been how do we elevate some of these stories and not in a way to scare people? But I think knowing that this is happening, one in four pregnancies do end in loss. These are things that individuals experience. I know for myself, as we talked about that timeline, it's been strange sharing mine, but I was really lucky that I actually did conceive pregnancy my very first month trying, which statistically was great. But I lost that pregnancy. And I'm now coming up on what originally would have been my due date was May 22nd, which is really soon. And I'm not pregnant. And I don't have a future pregnancy. And time just happens like as the body adjusts. And so I know personally that the timing and timelines and what you may expect often is not what happens. And that's okay. But I think my goal is people knowing that sooner because as time passes, all these other things happen. And so particularly in places we live, like bigger cities where a lot of women are really career focused, it can kind of catch us off guard (laughs) in our mid thirties, as opposed to maybe other areas in the country where women are having these conversations or just starting to start building families in their twenties, as opposed to maybe later.
1: That's right. I totally agree. And I think honestly, almost everyone I know has a story to share. And I'm not saying that everyone has had a hard time, but everyone has a story. Almost no one that I know is like, I tried once and I got pregnant, and then I tried again and I got pregnant, and then I have my two kids. Almost no one is in that situation. I have friends who had a really easy time with their first one and then an incredible struggle with their second. I have friends who tried for years and couldn't and decided to go a different route. I have patients who have struggled in many ways for years and years and gave up and then ended up conceiving spontaneously, randomly later in their life. Everyone has some sort of story. And I think it's so valuable to sort of surface that and honor that because it will normalize the experience. This is the one area that we wish we could control and we can't. And that's sort of part of the journey of realizing (laughs) your. Womanhood in a way and your personhood in this way is it's just a part of the human experience that is just so variable and and mystifying in some ways and that we all have to sort of stick together around.
2: Hearing you talk a little bit about some of the, you know, ups and downs, just as someone who's unpartnered and has not started their preservation journey yet. I can even just feel in my chest like, oh man, oh, I need to like <laughs> get to work here. But One of the things to Becca's point, just about being able to elevate some of these stories and voices and information, most importantly, I think is empowerment. And so I'm I'm very curious and we're very curious, what are some things around your own body that you have learned and that in turn have created that sense of empowerment for you?
1: To just share my own fertility journey, I'm someone who's like really heavily leaned on my physical being to Get through the days, you know. I went to medical school, residency had a really hard, challenging eight years of all of that, where I was working, you know, eighty-hour weeks and up for thirty-six hours at a time, and I really pushed myself. And I also during that time ran marathons and triathlons. I was really pushing my body to an edge, and so it cultivated in me a really deep sense of trust in my body because I was like, I can do anything, you know. Um, You sort of start to take it for granted in that way. And my husband and I got married in 2015. And I really wanted to start trying in 2016, about a year after. And I was at that time, you know, I was about to turn like 33, 34. And I was like, Yeah, it's, it would be great to, you know, to try to conceive before 35. I mean, not to say that there's anything special about 35. But for whatever reason, in my mind, and through the power of media, and despite all my information as an OBGYN, for some reason, that was really important to me. So it tells you that, you know, these, these beliefs are very deep seated. And we actually started to try for a while, we didn't get pregnant That was for about six months. And I was starting to get nervous. And, and then we had a really tough time in our marriage and we just couldn't sink on this sort of journey. So we took a hiatus for about eight or nine months. And during that time I decided to freeze my eggs. And that was just a decision I made on my own. We actually didn't freeze embryos because it was truly just my decision and my need for security around my future fertility that had nothing to do with my husband, actually. So I went ahead and did that. And it was actually kind of a sad process. So I was like, I have a partner, we actually do want to have a family, but we're just not on the same page. And so I went ahead and did that. And then, you know, a few months later, we were in the same place. And we really wanted to keep trying. And we kind of came to a common conclusion around that, and started and it took us another eight months to conceive. So it was a full, almost three year journey. And we did end up, Conceiving spontaneously, and had already sort of explored the idea of going to IVF because it was taking such a long time. And fortunately, it happened. And I was sort of resting on, okay, well, if this ends in a loss, like it's okay, it'll be okay, and preparing myself for that because my expectations had just gone all over the place for that time. And then it worked out, and I ended up having my baby early. Um, he was premature, but he's healthy and happy, and I'm really grateful. and For whatever reason, it all worked out, maybe for the right reasons. But I guess what I'll say about what have I learned about my body is it is sort of an exercise in having to relinquish control, like truly. And in many ways, there was this period of time where I was like, I can't trust my body at all. I don't know what's going on. I'm doing all the right things. I did all the right things. I took care of it. I mean, I wasn't very healthy and yet it wasn't working for me. And I was almost like angry at it. Like I had treated it well and it wasn't treating me well. And then when I became pregnant, I sort of went the other direction where I was like, there's this sort of intuition I can have about my body now that's only mine. Pregnancy is this really interesting process where you sort of are going through these changes that you don't even know like why they're happening. And when it ended up giving birth, it really felt like this like truly like mind body is one like intuitive process where I was like, I know what's happening here and I know I can do it. And I sort of came to trust my body in a different way. So it was a journey. I don't know if I can say what I learned, but I I felt like it taught me to not take my body for granted and to really appreciate the kind of intuition that particularly women have about their bodies and, and really to trust yourself that when When it needs to come through, it will.
2: That was wonderful. It's so heartening to hear that journey, especially I think for many of us, we have this feeling of almost being blasé, like, you know, my body works pretty well. You know, of course there are things I'd like to change about it, but it's doing everything it needs to do for me. And then you hit this decision-making or inflection point and you realize that there are all these systems and things that you maybe weren't aware of. And I really appreciate your reflection on the meld of the mind-body connection during birth. So often, some of the stories you hear focus on the ways in which people feel disempowered. But to hear someone speak about really that point of unification through that process and also like at a time of a change of identity too, that is really powerful. In a similar fashion, as you know, the podcast is called Our Bodies, Our Voices. We'd love to know if there's one way you are using your voice, particularly during this time and particularly in your role, or just as you know a woman of color in the world, and that we could share with our listeners.
1: Yeah. I think coming on to shows like this is one way that I'm using my voice to really educate people that even though it feels like there's so much that we can't control, there's so much uncertainty, there's a silver lining to this pandemic. I mean, there's been so much loss. There's so much grief that we all collectively share about our way of living, about actual people that we've lost in our lives. And yet there are ways in which the scarcity has forced evolution in how we relate to each other, connect with each other, function in the world, how care is delivered. As I mentioned earlier, I think we were really behind on how we were providing prenatal care and pregnancy-related care. And Almost like creating fear in people, like, you better come in every month or else, you know, we're not gonna know how your baby's doing. And actually, you know how your baby's doing, you know, and we're not doing much. So you don't need to come in except for every two months and you're gonna be fine. That shift in actually trusting our patients, trusting you to know your body, is happening all over healthcare. And I hope that my voice can help illuminate that because I've always felt that that's a missing ingredient in how healthcare is delivered, especially in this country, where we truly have like a sick care system, not a healthcare system, and where we really only empower people to access care when something's really wrong, as opposed to when they want to prevent things from going that direction. And so now I feel like we're in this position where the tides have turned and where it's like, no, 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 you know yourself, come to us when you need us, come to us when you want something from us, and we're going to be here for you, as opposed to we're going to tell you what you need to do. And I I really am surprised and heartened to see that shift because I think it's like a cultural shift that we've needed for a long time. So I hope that my voice is helping to illuminate that because, especially for women of color, especially for disenfranchised communities, that trust that is now being given to you is going to change the way that you experience care. And it's super important.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. And I really appreciate you taking time to. Chat with us and answer these questions. I think those are really a lot of the topics we were hoping to cover. And you've given such great information for people who listen to this. Is there anything else you think you'd want to share? Or end on.
1: I just want to thank you for asking such great questions and illuminating these topics and bringing them to light. I think there's a lot of ways in which, obviously, in times of crisis like this, it's easy to say, "Let's just focus on the things that matter." and I just want to say that this matters. So thank you for continuing to talk about these issues during this time.
0: Thank you. Thank you
2: so much. We're so happy to have been able to have this conversation with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Our Bodies, Our Voices podcast with Dr. Chitra Warren. We really enjoyed talking with Chitra and getting her expert take on family planning in the age of COVID-19. We especially loved hearing her share her own journey and highlighting that each person's journey towards parenthood is unique and may not go as planned. To hear more episodes or to get in touch, please visit ourbodiesourvoices.com. Catch you later.